This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans and this edition has been aided with a grant from the Stafford Trust. When I walk around the ward to see my students, staff nurses would say to me, oh, having the parents here, they make the child worse. However kind and nice and lovely you might try to be, you're still an adult and there's always going to be that sort of power differential between yourself as an adult and as a child. We need to educate the parents about the most appropriate way of helping their child cope with painful procedures because if we've not been doing it and then they go, there, there, dear, don't worry, and that then shoots the child's anxiety up. And actually telling someone not to worry perhaps suggests that there's something to worry about. How do children, patients and adult health professionals communicate with each other when their worlds are generations apart? In the previous edition of Airing Pain, I met Zara and Amy, two teenagers in their GCSE years, both living with painful forms of arthritis. They'd been telling delegates at the Northern Ireland Pain Summit about how their conditions affect their daily lives. And in this edition, I want to pick up on something they said about explaining their pain to other people, contemporaries and adults, starting with Amy. You find yourself telling the same explanation to everyone. So when people, are, when people say, like, why do you have a lift pass or why are you limping? And you tell them you have arthritis. There's two responses, either what's arthritis or my insert family member has that. So it's kind of the same story over and over again. But I think once you tell your close friends, you know, everybody else just kind of gets into that kind of, well, she has arthritis. Everybody knows that. Whereas when I started first year, uh, two years ago, you know, I had to tell a whole different year of pupils that I had arthritis. And there's still people in my year now who still don't know. But when they ask, I'm not offended or angry. I'd rather they ask than be confused, which I think a lot of people are afraid to ask because they don't want to offend you. But it's really not offensive because I've had this illness for five years and it's just kind of a part of my life that I'm okay with. So they should be okay with it too, really. Even though we're still quite young, we don't act in the way children would when it comes to it. You know, if we have a problem, we'll tell the doctor. Um, we won't ignore it and hope for the best. Yeah, I don't like it when things are sugar-coated when you go to the hospital, which they aren't... You, the, the hospital are very good with things like that. They tell you like it is, but when people, like, kind of dance around a subject of your disability, it's, it's more annoying for us than, like, upsetting because you just want to get to the point. If you, if you have a question, ask it. If you want to know something, ask it. And If you want to say something, say it. We won't get offended unless it is offensive. So I think that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So Amy and Zara, both in their mid-teens, have the maturity and confidence to engage with their contemporaries and healthcare professionals about their conditions. They don't like it when things are sugar-coated, but if they have a problem, they will tell the doctor. Now, describing one's pain is difficult enough for adults, but for children younger or less confident than Zara and Amy, being interviewed by doctors and nurses in a hospital or clinic situation can pose significant communication issues on both sides. Alison Twycross is Head of Department for Children's Nursing at London South Bank University. She also does research in children's pain management with children, young people and parents. And she faces the same issues in her research as any health professional would in a consultation. One of the issues with the interviews 
with post-operative children who were 48 hours post-surgery was that I had to have a variety of different methods because some of the children had surgery on their jaw and they weren't very keen on speaking to me. I got them to write the answers instead. And with the younger children, I used a draw and write technique, which was where you get them to draw a picture and write a few words down and then you talk to them about their picture. So it's, if I were a child, getting a visual representation of my pain. Yeah, how it feels to you. One of the things about pictures is that you often get different data to what you might expect. Like one of the pictures I got, and actually only two of the children did the draw and write technique, and one child clearly didn't understand the question, so I didn't use that in my data analysis. But the young girl who did draw a picture wrote on it, in hospital, don't know what's going to happen to me, which suggested to me she hadn't been prepared for her surgery. And that wasn't something I thought that would come out of my data. And if I'd just been asking her questions about her pain after surgery, I perhaps wouldn't have got that information about the fact that she was anxious or worried because she didn't, no one had told her what was going to happen to her properly. Actually, it sounds really scary to me. If we're facing new situations and we know a little bit about what's going to happen, it's far less scary than if we're just told that we're going to something done to you. Actually, when I, I had a crown done on my, my tooth a couple of years ago, and I meant to tell my dentist at the time that he should have given me better information because I had no idea that I was going to have a a temporary crown and, and what it was going to involve, I kind of just blithely turned up at the dentist. That really illustrated to me about the need for information so you can prepare yourself for what's going to happen. Dealing with children is obviously vastly different from dealing with adults. I mean, how do you get them to explain what is going on in their minds, their, their pain and things like that? I've got nieces and nephews who range from 14 down to I think, nine months and obviously when I'm talking to them, I talk in slightly different ways to the 14-year-old than I do to the the six-year-old. But the six-year-old, you can have a proper conversation with them, but you kind of have to use words within their vocabulary and understanding. It's not talking down to a child. It's talking at their level. Yeah, I think it's really important not to talk down. Sometimes adults can appear quite patronising. One of the things I've always been quite good at, I think, is, is, is talking to children at the right level. I'm the eldest of five children, so maybe that helps. But I do sometimes see adults change how they're talking when they're talking to a kid. And I kind of think that's insulting. I don't know what children think, but I kind of think they must notice that some people talk to them as if they're a normal human being and other people kind of appear to be a little bit patronising and maybe talk down to them. I educate, at the moment, just over 250 student nurses a year in my department and they're trained to be children's nurses, one of the first modules they do is about communicating with children and young people and parents. And they need to know how to communicate with children at different levels of development, different ages, children with cognitive impairments. They need to be able to communicate with children of 2, 5, 11, 16. There were challenges at 16 as well as at 2. I know. And also, you've clearly got teenagers who are involved with teenagers, and also to talk to parents. And actually, parents have differing needs as well and understand more or less about what's going on, depending on their experience and education, I guess. Do you talk to children with their parents or without their parents? For research purposes, there is a huge 
growing body of evidence, probably not huge, about the pros and cons of having parents there. I usually give children the choice. The study I was talking about, which I undertook in Canada when I was on sabbatical there a few years ago, the parents were all there. And I think maybe in the hospital setting, that's not so much of an issue. But I know that some of my colleagues who've interviewed children in their own home, when the parents have been there and the brother and sister have been there, there's kind of been a bit of interference going, no, 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 that's not really what you mean. And actually one of my PhD students was interviewing a child about their pain and asked how much pain the child was in. And he went, oh, it's a five out of ten. And his mum pipes up, no, 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 it's a two out of ten. And then he went, yeah, 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 two out of ten. So I maybe shot myself in the foot about my argument about hospital because that was in hospital. But I think there are pros and cons and you have to be aware of it. The child might feel more comfortable if the parent's there, but then are they going to butt in and um, influence the child's responses? And I guess you've always got to have that at the back of your mind. One of the things there as a parent, as a grandparent as well, is that I can remember taking my son as a four-year-old to hospital because he knocked himself out. And he'd had a Four-year-old row, boys do that. Uh, and he'd had a row for doing it, which, which made me feel really good. <laughs> I was more emotionally battered by it than he was. And I just wonder whether it's, it's, it's a good thing to have a parent around sometimes. It's interesting. I think we do need parents to be there in hospital with the children because I think it does help the children. I remember when I started my first placement in paediatrics when I was a student in the mid-80s, Parents weren't allowed to stay overnight. And then when I became a staff nurse on the same ward, there was a new sister and we had parents on camp beds. So it was a bit of a nightmare climbing over beds to give IV antibiotics in the middle of the night or to see to a child. But I think children are better and the research evidence supports that. But we also need to reflect on how having the parent there impacts on how the child behaves. We know, for example, that in relation to procedural pain, like painful procedures, if the parent goes, they're there, don't worry, we now know that that makes the child more anxious. And so if the parents are going to be involved in the child's care, we need to educate them about the best way of reassuring their children. There's some research from the US and Canada where they've actually trained parents to use the right sort of words before the painful procedure. And the child's had far less pain during the procedure and been much more settled. So having parents is a good thing. Finding out about this research in Canada and the US solved a bit of a problem for me because when I walked around the ward to see my students in some of my previous jobs, staff nurses would say to me, oh, having the parents here, they make the child worse. And actually, knowing that we need to educate the parents about the most appropriate way of helping their child cope with painful procedures explains that because if we've not been doing it, and then they go, there, there, dear, don't worry. And that then shoots the child's anxiety up. That's really interesting because my mum was a nurse and she would say having a parent anywhere near a child in hospital, you know, this newfangled thought of having mum and dad or mum or dad staying with a child, keep them away, they're only interfering. What you're saying now, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is that sometimes if, if I as a parent went and gave my child a huge cuddle what I would think of a supportive cuddle, it's actually telling the child, oh, this is going to hurt. Yeah, and actually telling someone not to worry perhaps suggests that there's something to worry about. We know developmentally and psychologically that having parents there is a good thing. I'm just doing some um, sociology of childhood modules and I'm trying to use those modules to 
understand why we don't manage pain as well as we could in children. And I think one of the issues is that if you look at the literature about healthcare consultations, medics and nurses to an extent will defer to the parents rather than asking the child. I'm not advocating that we, we don't have parents there, but we actually need to be very careful to ensure that we involve children in decisions. Even young children, we talk to them about what they want, as well as talking to the parents, and don't assume that the children are not competent to be involved in decision-making. How do you teach your nurses to speak to parents? They have various scenarios. One of the things we used to do in my previous organisation, which I really liked, in the first year they did a snapshot and it was focusing on communication. There were three or four different people they had to communicate with, so a parent, a child, an adolescent. By the end of their first year, the jargon they'd picked up, and we'd do a trial run, and we'd go, well, do you think they're really getting the parents or the child are really going to understand that? So I actually quite like that model of assessing them in a skills lab situation so that they can practice their communication and have some feedback in a safe environment. Because if we get the communication right about all aspects of healthcare, children and parents are going to have a much better healthcare experience. And it'd be less frustrating for the nurses. One of the things I've used in cancer care is setting a pain goal. So they decide at the beginning of the child's admission to hospital, for example, what they want the pain level to be. So 2 out of 10, 3 out of 10, whatever. And then they build a pain management plan around that what I think is great about that is it starts the communication with the parent and the child and the nurse about what they want the pain to be, what pain level they want the child to be at. We're not always very good at doing that. In, in my research, when nurses have communicated with parents, my research in the UK suggested it was when professional middle-class parents ask questions about the pain, the nurses would then respond. If the parents didn't ask questions they didn't really discuss the pain. In Canada, the nurses did talk to the parents, but they focused in on what pain medications they were going to give. There was no, let us know if your child's not in pain, if you think your child's in pain, let us know if the pain medications don't work. So it's more about having, I think we need to have an open dialogue, but we need to reinforce it as well. We almost need to have posters on the ward saying, we don't want your child to suffer unnecessary pain and address that public misconception just because you've had surgery, you're going to have moderate to severe pain. Particularly as there's emerging evidence that if you have mismanaged acute post-operative pain, severe pain for a number of days, you're more likely to get chronic post-operative pain, even in children. And that's a significant proportion of children getting it. I think the first study found 15% of children got chronic post-operative pain. And we're beginning to understand the risk factors, so we should be addressing them and one of those is making sure children aren't in severe pain for a prolonged period post-operatively. That was Alison Twycross, Head of Department for Children's Nursing at London South Bank University. Now 15% of children getting chronic post-operative pain is a startling statistic especially if something as basic as good age-appropriate communication skills could help reduce those numbers. So what should we as adults know about talking to children? Bernie Carter is Professor of Children's Nursing at the University of Central Lancashire and she also works at Alderhey Children's NHS Foundation Trust in Liverpool. I'll either use stories, so I'll get children to perhaps tell me a story about their pain 
or if that's going to be too difficult for them because the pain is too close to them, is too sensitive for them to talk about specifically, perhaps you'll get them to tell us a story about another child that was in pain, so they express it through that. One of the other ways that I use that I think is can be really successful and the children quite enjoy doing is using arts-based methods. So that can be as simple as giving a child a piece of A4 paper and a pencil, or you can give children a whole range of different crayons and felt-tip pens and a lo load of colours that they can use. You can use collage, so you can give them a range of different materials to use, such as bandages and wool and raffia and paper and glue and materials that have got a different feel to them, like foil, stuff that crinkles, to try and get a whole range of different senses that they could actually portray. And then we either use sketchily drawn body outlines that are not looking like the body outlines you get on a standard pain assessment chart. You put them on something like A3 paper and then give the children the chance to actually start to sort of build up a visual picture a 3D picture of what their pain's like. Or you can just give them a blank sheet of paper and say, tell me what your pain's like, draw it, use these materials. Sometimes you can work with them if they want a bit of support, but mostly what we do is just leave it to them to make the decisions to what materials they'll use. It's one thing for a child to do that, but yep. you have to be able to interpret that as well. There are ways that you can do an, an interpretation of that, looking at the materials they've used, the choice of materials, the depth of materials they've used, the colours that they've used, the, the amount of the area that has been covered, how they actually engaged with the activity. A simple thing, if they're colouring something in, whether or not they're colouring it in very lightly, or if they're colouring it in like bilio and really scribbling and getting indentations of the colouring in into the paper. And those are all quite interesting ways of working. But for me, the more important thing is using that arts-based approach, that picture that they've created, that they own, that expresses their pain, and getting them to start to talk about it. So what's going on here? Tell me what's happening here. And in quite little words, they can then start to take you on the journey to show you what's happening and where things are going wrong for them with their pain and what they want to do about it. So you can get them to talk about which is the most important pain, which is the one they don't like, which is the one they've got the most power over which one they'd like to zap the first. And that way you can start to get a sense of what's really important to them. So for me, their meaning and their interpretation is more important than anything that I as a researcher can actually apply from outside because that's coming from their world of meaning as a child rather than my interpretation as an adult with all the expectations that I have. So. For example, in one of the studies that we've done, we, the children used plasters. So we had quite a lot of these little body outlines covered in plasters. And we were trying to work out what was going on, and the plasters were denoting the intensity and perceived severity of the pain, rather than the fact that there'd been a need either for a plaster or the skin had been broken and there was blood. So a plaster for the children under the age of about nine meant it was a bad pain. So if we'd interpreted it from the outside, we'd have thought there'd been an injury and there hadn't actually been an injury in that particular situation. So there was, again, it was like a figurative use of the materials. Thinking about my children and now my grandchildren, who are six and three, yeah. when they get involved in their artwork, yeah. they live in a completely, not an isolated world, but they really get stuck into it. Yeah. 
and to work out those thought processes of why they're doing such a thing, there's a tremendous resource there that adults don't have to describe their pain. Although if you give adults art materials, they can do some really fantastic work in expressing pain and it can be a way of actually unlocking an experience that they've not been able to express in words. So for some of the parents of children in chronic pain who have to live alongside the child's chronic pain and can feel overwhelmed and desperate and helpless and angry and guilty and a whole range of other different emotions as well as feeling very stressed by the care they're having to provide. There are studies that have shown the therapeutic use of artwork for parents and when you look at adults drawings of pain there's resonances that run all the way through so the same sorts of imagery are used so jagged lines red colors things that are seen to be threats so hammers and hard objects and things that are crashing so those images are sort of pretty resonant within children's work as well as within parents and adult sufferers work. I was asked to describe my pain recently. It took me a little bit unawares and the way I described it, a sort of general all over aching, was being enveloped in a grey or a beige jelly. Now actually being put on the spot to think in that way and to describe it to somebody else, I found quite good. Yes. I believe children have got a really strong sense of agency and I believe they've got a lot of competence and capacity. But sometimes using words can be quite tricky. So when we're using drawings quite often, what or artwork or collage work or sculpture or whatever, the artwork gives the children a chance to pause and take stock of stuff and then start their drawing. So where perhaps you were asked what your pain was like, there would have been, I don't know, maybe a possibly not more than a 10-second pause before you felt that you had to start to give an answer because that's what's socially polite we don't to do. Like, we don't like silence. We don't like silence. There's an acceptance with drawing that there can be a silence, which means that if you're asking a child to perhaps draw some of their pains or start to draw a picture of what their life is like having pain it's acceptable to say, we're going to give you about 15 minutes or we give you 10 minutes to do this and you start whenever you want. And they can start to do that and that way they can actually map out those sorts of things that they want to talk about. So I would then do my interview based on those images that they'd actually drawn rather than me asking questions that come from my frame of reference. And quite often you'll see within some of the drawings that children and adults do that there's notion of a, an envelopment that's either keeping them away from the world so other people can't get in because they don't understand their pain or it's a fog or there's a blackness that they've kind of got over them. So there's, there are these notions of boundaries that you can see. And the, the responsible person, you know, if you're being responsible when you're talking to somebody about that, you wouldn't say, oh, I can see you're in a bounded area of grey jelly. You'd say, tell me what you're telling me. You know, what's this picture telling me? You have to go a bit carefully with the little kids because they generally expect that you know exactly what. You have to try and work out whether or not it's up the right way, perhaps. But it's just a device, it's a trigger to get people to be able to talk. I think it's Goffman talks about drawings being a ticket to ride somewhere else. So it gives you permission to actually go in and it's, it's a very patient-centred way of working. I wonder also, is it a way of taking the focus away from the child 
and putting a third person, i.e. the painting, in the middle that you can both relate to. One of the things you have to think about when you're interviewing children or working with children is that however kind and nice and lovely you might try to be, you're still an adult and there's always going to be that sort of power differential between yourself as an adult and as a child. And one of the things the use of artwork can do is it mediates that bit. So instead of me looking politely and directly into the eyes of the child and asking them to tell me something, they can actually talk. And quite often a lot of my conversations with children are undertaken to the top of their head because they're still busy drawing. So in, in that sense, it can become like a, a third actor in the room that becomes a voice for children. And sometimes the, the children and the parents can be quite surprised by what the child has drawn. The way that we normally try to express pain is that we use words. And words can be powerful, but they can also be quite dismissible as well. If a child actually presents you with an image of what their pain is like, and it's black, and it's sad, and it's destroyed, and you can see how far the red is over the page in terms of where the pain goes, and that's said in conjunction with this is, this is what it feels like to be me. It's really difficult for people to ignore that because we are kind of hardwired for these visual images to take kind of a, a notice of them. So I think it can actually give children that sense of validation that they've communicated effectively and people have taken notice of that. So people will use artwork within chronic pain clinics as a starting point. So instead of starting a conversation with a child from a clinical history point of view, the clinical conversation can start from, this is what it's like to be me. So tell me about your picture. So it becomes a really strong voice that can be filed in the children's notes. And you can, as children's pain improves and they develop either more mastery over their pain or the interventions actually become more effective, their subsequent drawings are likely to act as indicators of, of progress as well. And that can be useful because sometimes your progress might be slow, but your drawing actually looks less painful. So you can use that to track children's progress over a period of time. That was Bernie Carter, Professor of Children's Nursing at the University of Central Lancashire. I'll just remind you, as always, that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances, and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, we heard earlier how the mismanagement of acute post-operative pain, that is, severe pain for a number of days following an operation, adults and children are more likely to get chronic post-operative pain. So, what advice should be given to parents of a child going in for an operation? Alison Twycross, Head of Department for Children's Nursing at London South Bank University. I would want the parent to understand that the child doesn't have to be in pain after surgery because there appears to be a general acceptance among parents and the general public as a whole that because you're in hospital and you've had surgery, you're inevitably going to have some sort of moderate to severe pain. Whereas actually, that isn't the case. And because parents appear to have this misconception, they 
seem to think that if the nurses could do anything, they would have done it. I've had children and parents say that to me in the past. And because they believe that, that some pain is to be expected, they don't go to the nurse and go, hey, look, these pain medications aren't working. Can we increase the dose? Can we try something else? Can we use some of the, the, the non-drug methods? The way to change practices and make sure that children don't experience unrelieved moderate to severe pain in hospital is to enhance parent power. One of the issues, though, is that now that a lot of children have day surgery, they're home within less than 24 hours, and so it's the parents themselves who are managing the child's pain. And if they're not educated and, and hold misconceptions and erroneous beliefs about how children behave in pain, a lot of parents think that, and as nurses do, think that a child's behavioural cues are indicative of how much pain they're in. We know that's not true. A lot of parents think pain medications are addictive and have horrendous side effects. For most pain medications, that's not true. So parents, when they're with their child in hospital postoperatively, need to advocate for their child. And that can be quite difficult because, like, there's the power relationships. But I think we need to try and find a way of empowering parents to advocate for their child's pain and to jump up and down when their child's pain isn't really. I think pain should be no more than three out of ten in the immediate postoperative period. And then when parents are taking their children home, they need resources. We also know that parents often have to ring another healthcare professional for advice, usually in the middle of the night. And so I think we need to think of different ways of empowering parents when they're managing their children's pain at home.